Welcome to another episode of Life Stories by Congo Kid, where I share my experiences of growing up in the Democratic Republic of Congo in Central Africa. My hope is you find knowledge, entertainment, information, and insight of another culture and a new perspective of the Congolese people and Africa. The Congo, the country with an amazing story. From exploitation to wars to political instability to tragedy. In part one of this series on the history of Congo, we learned about how Belgium was formed, gained independence, and how King Leopold II finagled his way to getting full personal control of the Congo Free State. He exploited the people for ivory and rubber, killing and maiming millions of Congolese for the benefit of his personal bank account. Then, Belgium took over in 1908 as its colony for over 50 years, where mining and industry became prevalent and literacy rose. Then, in the late 1950s, unrest began as Congo wanted their independence. The start of the first five years of its existence, called the First Republic, was rough with killings, seceding provinces, and political rivalry. Communist Simba rebels almost overthrew the government, and Dr. Paul Carlson was killed. Then... Colonel Joseph Mobutu pulled off a coup in 1965. This period is known as the Second Republic. Then we had Mobutu run the country into the ground economically. There were rebellions, and the country changed its name to Zaire in Mobutu's attempt to unify the country. The Rwanda genocide happened in 1994, sparking ongoing conflict in the east, and then Laurent Kabila prevailed with his rebel group and took over as president in 1997. Mobutu then died. This brings us to episode 5 on the history of Congo. Laurent Kabila had just taken over as president of the country. After over 30 years of wanting the top job, he finally got it. He immediately got to work. The trash got picked up, the buildings were cleaned, soldiers and the police started getting their paychecks. He stopped printing banknotes so cash was scarce, meaning it was actually worth more. The currency was changed to the Congo franc. Bye-bye, Zaire banknote. He changed the country's name back to the Democratic Republic of Congo. Initially, the currency was stable, and inflation started to drop considerably. My friend Talabisa Dawina, not his real name, a Congolese living in the United States, shares his comments on Laurent Kabila's initial impact. For a couple months, actually, uh, the old Laurent Kabila, he, he seems to be doing very well. I mean, talk to people who are living in the country. There was some order that started coming in. I mean, he was so disciplined and he was bringing much discipline to the Congolese people. You know, if they get you like someone who had done something wrong, public wrong, uh, mainly those people who are misusing the government money, they will bring them and then they will slap them and beat them up in public in the stadium. And, and things change. People, for instance, in Kichasa, where people used to fight to get in buses, people start lining up. You, you see the bus full, you let that go, and then another one comes, etc., etc. But even though he didn't have enough buses, that's initially exactly what he did. He started paying salaries to the teachers and to the soldiers. I mean, you will see a soldier who will be afraid of a soldier anymore, as Mobutu's time. 
because the soldier has paid, gotten his salary, something that had been experienced in Congo before. Some of the things that used to take a lot of his time, but whenever he wanted to do something, he really wanted to do something for the country. But he was not a politician. He didn't know how to do diplomacy. So while it seemed all lollipops, unicorns, and rainbows out of the gate with Kabila in charge, that faded quickly. The new constitution put virtually all power in his hands. He abolished all political parties, save his AFDL party. He was the head of the legislative, executive, and judicial branches. Hmm, sound familiar? All those formerly loyal to Mobutu were rounded up and imprisoned or killed. Others he made study Marxism, as that was part of his agenda. Pete Ekstrand, who served as a missionary for 40 years in Congo in education and pastoral work and recently retired, shares his perspective of the new Laurent Kabila regime. I think yeah, there was a difference in how Kabila ran the country and how Mobutu ran the country. Mobutu, I'd say, was a, a master politician. He, he brought everyone in for their turn to stick their hand in the honeypot, and they were all beholden to him. So anyone who was opposed to him, he somehow ended up being also beholden to Mobutu for the money that he had. So there's all these dependency relationships. Kabila wasn't so wise in that same way. Kabila also had no economic sense at all from all that I've read and, and what I've heard. I mean, the economy was a disaster under Kabila. And I think he was more under the influence of uh, foreign powers than Mobutu was. Mobutu was his own man. I mean, I've heard you comment at your other broadcasts. I mean, he milked the Western countries for all he could. And he was successful at it. Kabila was not that kind of person. On August 2nd, 1998, the Second Congo War started. Rwandan soldiers crossed the border, and again, the objective was regime change in Kinshasa and to grab a piece of the pie in eastern Congo, where trillions of dollars worth of natural resources are located. Uganda also joined the fray. Unfortunately, unlike the first Congo War that was seven months long, this one lasted five years. Nine African countries were involved, as were numerous militias. It was horrible. An estimated 3 to 5 million people were killed from bullets, disease, or starvation. Most Congolese escaped into the forest and lived for months or years with inadequate food, lousy drinking water, exposure to diseases, and lack of medical care. Unfortunately, little news was shared about this war, even though the casualties totaled more than the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan combined. Do you ever remember hearing or reading about the Congo in the late 1990s and the war? I doubt it. With the reduction of returning missionaries to continue the work, the local church was virtually on its own. So, does the church fly solo? One of the things that started during that period of time, early morning, 4.30 in the morning, times of prayer and worship, people talked about those being lifeblood for them when they were hiding in the forest, that they were just regular to that. Yeah, that was, like I said, life-giving. Um, and that became a regular part of life as peace returned and they were able to come back into their villages or the cities and didn't fear for their lives so much anymore. That early morning rhythm of gathering for prayer and worship in neighborhoods, you know, groups of 15 or 20, it could be 50, was a regular part of life 
uh, and it continues to this day in some areas more stronger, more strongly than others. Public health outreach, you know, that's just curtailed because travel is limited. The church, the pastors are keep preaching now. The services keep being held. The deacons are doing their job, and as you know, that the deacons are really the the bulwark of the of the local church. They're the ones who carry on just so much of the ministry in the house-to-house visits, in the funerals, in the visits to the med- the sick people, praying and all those kind of things. So that continued in a different format. A Congolese friend of mine was in Congo in late 1998 when the war started. His name is Nyenemo Sanguma, and he now lives in the Chicago area and is married and settled, raising his family. Here is his story about the political situation in 1998 when the Second Congo War started. 1997 was tense because Kabila brought a lot of foreigners. And when I'm talking about foreigners, there are a lot of Rwandan soldiers who were in my hometown in Gemena. He also brought people from the eastern part of Congo. Most of them spoke Swahili and they had accent speaking Lingala. So a lot of people in my hometown, they didn't know if they were Rwandans or if they were Congolese. For us, they were foreigners. So when in 1998, Jean-Pierre Bemba, he was uh, one of the rebel leaders who was coming back. Jean-Pierre Bemba, we knew him, you know, we knew his father, his father was a businessman. So for a lot of people in my hometown, they saw Jean-Pierre Bemba coming over and they wanted to welcome him. Yeah, a lot of people were looking forward. We thought he would be a liberator. There was considerable fear by the civilians. The Kabila soldiers, they knew that the people of Gemena were actually looking forward to welcoming Jean-Pierre Bemba because Jean-Pierre was the son of Gemena. And for Kabila soldiers, they didn't take this very well. So they were more agitated. So it was easier for them to be more aggressive when they knew that Jean-Pierre Bemba and his soldiers were advancing towards Gemena. So it was a lot of fear. When Jean-Pierre Bemba arrived in Gemena, then that's when Kabila started the bombing. And it was Kabila bombing the town of Gemena and also the towns that uh, Jean-Pierre Bemba was in control over. So this made things even a lot scarier because a lot of people were not used to bombings in this uh, town. So the first thing that Jean-Pierre did was to instruct the citizens of Gemena on what to do when Kabila started bombing. And it was simple. When you hear bombing or when you hear a plane, go lay down flat and wait until the bombing stopped, then you can get up. That was it. Then the bombs hit. So it was December 25th. My church was from Epoch. It was, you know, suburbs of Yemena. But because I was in the choir, I had to go sing at the bigger church um, in Bokonzo. But of course, my mom and my siblings, they stayed behind to go to their regular church in Epoch. So around noon, we heard a very loud noise, loud noises, because there were, I think, maybe four or five. And this was during um, the offerings. And I'm sure you, you do know very well that in Congo, during the offerings, you know, people are always singing and 
the worship, dancing. So we couldn't clearly hear the bombings, but we knew that there were like loud sounds, but we didn't know that it was the bomb. And then about an hour later, the pastors from our the, the church we were in, they came back running and you could tell that something was up and they were the one who delivered the news to us that there were bombings and they knew that there were casualties. And that was, that was very scary because I knew that my mom and my siblings, they were in that church. And, you know, I was very afraid because I didn't know if they survived the bombings or not. Being separated from his family, Nyanamo ran to where his mom and siblings were. We were about, I will say, three miles away from the bombings. But my mom and siblings, they were basically 100 yards from the bombing. We don't know the number of people who died that day. But when I went there to the church looking for my mom and siblings, I could see that there were about 50 people who died. I could see people, limbs here and there, intestine out brain out, people moaning, crying for help. You know, I didn't want to look at what was there because it was scary. It was intense. And I was just focusing on running and getting away from, you know, all the bodies around, running to look for my my, my siblings and, you know, my my family. I was also afraid because I knew I was running very fast and I was worried that maybe I was my mom or siblings or one of the people crying for help. And I, uh, so yeah, it, it was a very scary moment for me. No one was actually hurt. We were all safe. I eventually found my mom and uh, she told us about what actually happened. That's when they dropped the bomb, you know, there were like smoke all over the place and they couldn't see outside. So they were like a stampede in the church and, you know, people got out. She says that no one in the church was hurt, but people who were outside. After fearing for their safety, the family took action. When this happened, this was December 25th. We were not yet convinced whether or not we should, we should have escaped Yemena. So the 26th, we all stayed, of course, in Yemena. But then there was a plane that came over Gemena. And of course, that scared us. We all went in hiding. They didn't drop bombs that day, and we don't know why. But then the 27th, there was a second bombing, which killed a lot, a lot of people in Gemena. Uh, I, I know this because I, I lost a lot of friends during that bombing because the bomb dropped down right next to the stadium. And every time the bomb will drop, scary because when the bomb is dropping, you don't know if you will survive the next few seconds. You don't know if it's coming after you. So it's it's pretty, pretty scary. It lasted about 10 minutes, but I swear it felt like hours. And after the bombing stopped, you can hear the city weep. You know, people were crying because they lost their loved ones. So it was scary. And So after that bombing, that's when we knew that it was not safe for us anymore. And my mom uh, started debating whether or not we should leave Gemina because it was not safe anymore. They started the trip to cross the border about 160 miles away. 
We left Gemina that same day. We thought that we were the only ones planning to leave. So the bombing took place around 2, 3 p.m. Um, but my mom didn't want us to leave during the day so people can see us. She wanted us to wait until midnight to leave Gemina. So we got our clothes, you know, everything that we could carry with us. And then at midnight, we all left our home and started heading to the forest. We didn't know exactly where we were going. But when we got to the main road, we could see a lot, a lot, a lot of people also from Gemina escaping. So we were not the only one with the plan of leaving Gemina. And it was around midnight. Thank God the moon was out and it was very shiny. But there were a lot of rocks on the road. So there were a lot of people falling, slipping. And yeah, it, it was a intense nights, you know, escaping your hometown, going to the forest. You know, we didn't know where we were going and uh, it was just very uncertain for us and a lot of people in Gemena. So in the, you know, we arrived of course in the forest and we were there for I think a month or two. And during this time, Kabila soldiers occupied Gemena and the, you know, and the roads from Gemena all the way to Zongo. And then we started, we got in a huge truck heading to, to Zongo. There were a lot of roadblocks, okay? There were a lot of roadblocks by Kabila soldiers. So we got to the roadblock, and I think they were trying to intimidate us, but they were also trying to harm some people because we had one passenger with us, um, so that passenger was detained and they were being very aggressive with him. They manhandled him, put him under a mango tree, and then the commandant or the leader of the soldier commanded, you know, ask one soldier to get their gun and point it at him and to shoot at the count of three. And that even really scared us because we thought they were really going to shoot him. And then the, he started counting one two and then he didn't say three and then he told the soldiers not to waste the bullets on him that they were gonna stab him or cut him in pieces later and we of course left him there we don't know what happened to him but there were just a lot of roadblocks and a lot of intimidation and it, it was pretty scary there were some places where an entire village was pillaged and you could see people's bone on the roads you could even smell all some body, you know, body bodies. It, it was pretty scary. The road from Gemina all the way to Zongo. During this time, Congo was, you know, going through a war, and you know, we didn't have all the legitimate papers, so we had to get fake papers here and there to cross. We bribing is bribing in the Congo is a, is a normal thing for so many. So yeah, we paid the bribe and then we crossed over to uh, to Central African Republic, Bangui. Once across the river, they knew they were safe. You know, when we crossed, that was my first time, you know, during the war to have a peaceful mind, to have a quiet heart, because I knew that I was not in the Congo anymore. And when we crossed, we got in a taxi and I remember just looking at my sister, my older sister, Sharufa, 
And we just started laughing. You know, we don't know why we were laughing, but it was the most genuine laugh I had in a while. And yeah, it, it was just a good feeling that we were not in Congo, that we were in Central African Republic. They caught a plane to Douala, Cameroon, and waited for over two months to get their visas and be reunited with their father in Southern California as he'd come on ahead to start school for his doctorate. When we arrived in Central African Republic, we had to go to Cameroon to get our visas. And it took a few months to get the visas because they were denying. And of course, Jeff Eels was uh, helped with his contacts in the U.S. to uh, get some people, make phone calls. And yeah, eventually we got the visa. And then, um, yeah, we reconnected with my father in Los Angeles, I think April 24th. I remember that day, April 24th, 1999. And you were there as well, Jeff, to pick us up from the airport to take us back to Pasadena. At one point, Uganda and Rwanda controlled half the country of Congo. They helped themselves to considerable natural resources in the process. The war was officially ended in 2003 per the Pretoria Peace Accord, but to this day, skirmishes and battles are being fought along the Ugandan border and the Rwanda border. Warlords prevail, and many people continue to live in fear as Rwanda and Uganda still try to leech the natural resource booty from the Congolese side. It's still very, very dangerous. So the first few years of Laurent Kabila's rule were tumultuous with ongoing conflict in the eastern part of the country, millions living in the forest, millions dying in the forest, and complete disruption of normalcy for the populace and the ongoing instability countrywide. Then, on January 16, 2001, one of his boy bodyguards approached him and assassinated him, killing him with three shots. The bodyguard, Rashidi, who had faithfully been with Laurent Kabila during the rebellion and takeover of the country, was immediately killed himself by an army colonel that was in the palace at that time. So why was Kabila assassinated? Well, theories abound, including how these boy bodyguards felt that they were being passed over for fighting with and for Kabila for many years now, and they wanted their piece of the spoils. The kicker was that one of these boy bodyguards had been shoved aside by Kabila and tossed in prison. When he was released, he pushed for a secession of the Kivu province. He was then shot during a protest, and that did it. All the other loyal boy bodyguards of Laurent Kabila turned on him. Hence, Rashidi, one of the most loyal of Kabila's bodyguards, took him out. With Laurent Kabila's death, now what to do? Well, fill the void. So appoint his 29-year-old son as president, of course. He was Rwandan. So it was hard for the Congolese to accept him. His arch enemy, Rwanda President Paul Kagame, the darling of the West, had finally been called out for pillaging Congo's resources. Joseph Kabila, the son, gave a few speeches on unity, peace, and Congo's role in the international community. So numerous peace talks occurred over the next year. In December 2002, peace was declared, and Uganda and Rwanda agreed to withdraw from Congo. But with the instability of the country, various areas had been effectively ruled and governed by others. One was Jean-Pierre Bemba, in the northwest area of Congo that I grew up in. He and several others were named vice presidents. This was historic. Finally, the turmoil in Congo would be ending and peace could return. 
The UN committed 16,700 blue helmets, making it the largest UN operation in history. One billion dollars annually was committed to help bring peace. European countries lent advisors to the young government. They had no authority, but lent support as best they could. Unfortunately, in a culture of Mobutuism, the direction was hard to turn. If the culture and government is entrenched in a lifestyle, think of it like an aircraft carrier, not a speedboat. It just takes considerable time to change the thinking and modify the systems, just like it takes a long time for an aircraft carrier to turn in any meaningful direction. It's called inertia. Corruption continued in government with legislators voting themselves raises and all sorts of perks like villas and cars. They stretched out the, quote, transition, unquote, government process as long as possible as they were all benefiting. Meanwhile, the common villagers suffered. In 2004, another horrible flash in the war happened in the Kivu region. The Hutus and Tutsis started another skirmish in Kivu near the Congo side of the border. Killing, raping dozens of girls and women, plundering and burning occurred. This was led by Laurent Nkunda, a Rwandan Hutu. He later took over Bukavu, the main city in the Kivu region. Turmoil continued. By the way, the use of sexual assault as a part of war and control continues to this day in eastern Congo. Unfortunately, very few assailants are ever charged, much less convicted and punished. There are numerous books and documentaries on this horrible situation that has destroyed and impacted most of the women and girls in the area, as well as broken apart families. Numerous charities and NGOs have been set up to stop this abuse and to help with the healing. The family dynamic, so critical for any stable society, especially in the Congolese culture, has been broken and damaged irreparably by the use of sexual violence and assault. It's all because of the desire to control the area for the exploitation of the trillions of dollars of natural resources right under their feet. Sadly, the love of money is the root of one of the most evil things known to humanity. By 2006, there was talk of an election. Polls were open to have an election pitting the incumbent against Jean-Pierre Bemba and Azarias Rouberois, the rebel leader that had been made one of the first vice presidents. There were a few others on the ballot as well. First round results were announced three weeks later, and Joseph Kabila had the majority of votes. Folks weren't happy, so as usual, shootings occurred and unrest was prevalent. The second round was a bit closer, with the 35-year-old Joseph Kabila taking 58% of the votes to 42% for Bemba. So for the first time since 1960, when Kasavubu was elected president, Congo had a second democratically elected president. Most still didn't trust the vote tabulation, but it was done. But like those before him, not much changed. The country was still split politically, and Joseph Kabila wasn't seen much, nor was he effective behind the scenes. In 2006, Congo ranked number five on the failed states index. The Doing Business Index rated Congo 182 out of 183 countries for doing business in. Taxes, administration, permits, etc. took forever to procure. Furthermore, Joseph Kabila set up the system to benefit himself, his family, and his friends to control and succeed in businesses throughout the country. 2007 and 2008 sparked more violence in eastern Congo. Rebels controlled large areas along the border, and the UN couldn't stop the killings. The rebel Nkunda didn't want to give up his power. There was just way too much money involved. My Congolese friend, Talabisa Dawena, shares about the Kivu area during this time. I mean, 
we have capacities, we have possibilities of living in Congo. But how can you go live in Beni when they're killing people and it can be you next tomorrow? And when you can just be here. Most of us are here as refugees, not because we are enjoying necessarily the life over here. It's just because we don't have a choice. Many, I know many Congolese who are here just because, I mean, they're afraid to be killed to be there. The country muddled along for another 10 years or so. The average person was eking out an existence. Not much hope for improvement due to corruption in the government and the army. People were doing whatever they could to make a buck and put food on their table. According to people who are following what is going on, they think that corruption has even almost doubled before the last Kabila. <laughs> it just doubled. I mean, let's take an example. The one who was the president, I mean, the director, the chief of staff of, staff of, of, of the president's office. They took over. When they took over, when he became working, within 14 months, he had embezzled. When they do the total amount that he has embezzled, it's close to $600 million of dollars. They arrested him for $57 million of dollars, but he had been given grace by the president. He's out of prison. I think he's somewhere here in America, just enjoying life, those millions. I remember in 2013, I was visiting my hometown of Gemina in northwest Congo. Things were tough for all my friends that I'd known since the 1970s. They were all pastors, school teachers, nurses, and attorneys now. Most had raised their families with no electricity or running water, and yet were working respectable jobs by all accounts. The school teachers hadn't been paid in months or years, yet did what they could for the kids that came to school. How could an entire two generations have gone by and things gotten worse politically and economically than in 1960 when the Belgians gave the Congolese its independence? I'd like to think I have the answer after growing up there and researching for this series of podcasts on the history of Congo as numerous geopolitical forces came into play, as you have heard in these episodes. And believe me, I've only scratched the surface on many of the events due to time constraints and in the spirit of keeping you, the listener, interested. But I think one word to me summarizes much of the problem that has held Congo back from its own success politically, economically, socially, and culturally. I'll explain in a story. It was January 18th, 2013. We were off for a few hours midday from our teaching English at an orphanage just outside of Gemina in northwest Congo. Gemina is a city of about 300,000 people and a large hub for commerce in the area. I went out with one of the students to the main road just adjacent to the orphanage. A mere 50 feet away, there was a roadblock set up. I watched seven police officers manning the roadblock. Their job was to stop all motorized vehicles, trucks, or motorcycles and check for insurance, registration, driver's license, and the like. That's it. That was what they were to do. Yet, in 45 minutes, I watched seven encounters of vehicles coming in or out of the city being stopped, being hassled, and paying a toll or tax or bribe money to the police to pass through. You see, the feeling was that if you owned a truck or motorcycle and could then conduct commerce, you could afford to pay to get through the roadblock, even if all your papers were in order. 
A guy hauling chickens or pushing a bike with a goat or pig on it could walk right on through. But a truck with merchandise or product in it meant the police needed to be paid. It was a game where after hassling the driver, joking and talking with them, mentioning they were thirsty or hadn't gotten paid that month, the driver knew he was losing time and would cough up a little money to be let through the roadblock. I turned to my Congolese friend and said, Do you realize I have my camera with me? I could have captured six or seven illegal interactions in the last 45 minutes. If this happened in the U.S., this entire group would be fired and in big trouble for engaging in this behavior. While corruption does happen in certain police forces, when it is discovered, it is dealt with severely. What needs to happen at the highest levels is to eliminate corruption so the common man can trust the leaders and the state employees. That would be a huge step towards the success of this country that has experienced so much political and economic corruption. I'm going to let Paul Noren explain in another story a similar example. Paul was born in Congo and is still working there after over 60 years. He captures the issue of how and why corruption is so prevalent and how the citizens have accepted it as a way of life. Okay, so a few weeks ago uh, when we were in Congo, we're, we're going outside of Yemen and we get stopped by the police. There's a whole bunch of policemen there. And they say, okay, your, your, your driver's license isn't good. Why isn't my driver's license good? Well, this is the wrong driver's license. And the, these are fraudulent driver's licenses. Said your people in your bureau gave him out. Yeah, we know that. We know that it was given out by our by our bureau, but but it wasn't right. So now we have to find people for getting them, and have to buy new ones and all this kind of stuff. And Pastor Dolly got out there and he reamed these people out so badly. He said, "If you have an internal problem in your office in your system, and someone's absconding with money in your system, is that our problem? Because you tell us this is what we have to have." So what do we do? We buy it. And we have these licenses. And then you tell us they're wrong because they weren't good. And now we have to buy new ones. No, you guys fix it out. You can't make me pay for anything that. And after a little while, they just, I mean, it didn't take long at all. They, they, they knew they couldn't argue with him anymore. They just gave it back to him and all this. And, and we, we went on. And at that point, it's like everybody else around was hearing the same thing. It's like they, they had a real problem on their hands. But that's exactly what they do. They, they come up with these, they, they keep on coming up with new rules. They always have a hammer over your head somehow to try to, and uh, it, it's, it's all corrupt craziness. And then the, the normal citizen, what do they do? They've got to bend and, and go with the wind and roll with the punches. And that's what they've learned to do since way back. So for the next eight years, Joseph Kabila ruled. The country did not improve economically or politically. Same old, same old. The common man struggled as he had for two generations. In 2016, Joseph Kabila termed out of the presidency. He'd now been in power for 15 years. But like those before him, he would not step down. He pressured parliament to modify the constitution to allow additional terms. The student population in Kinshasa protested, burning cars, making a ruckus, and rioting. Enough was enough. Many deaths and injuries ensued as Kabila sent out the military and police to silence the protesters. At the 11th hour, leaders of the Catholic Church were able to broker a truce to push out the election for a year, with the hope of it happening in an orderly and civil manner. But that wasn't good enough as Kabila tried to delay the election. He declared his census and redistricting of all the provinces. This was a process that could take several years. Fortunately, on December 30th, 2018, 
the country was able to have a real election for president. There were three candidates to choose from. Thanks again to the Catholic Church that provided 40,000 stewards to watch the polling booths to ensure integrity. Each Congolese that voted knew that their vote would be counted. There were post-election barbs being thrown about voter fraud or vote-counting issues. By the way, the Catholic Church stewards disagreed with the final tally, actually. But ultimately, the final count was accepted. The new democratically elected president, Felix Chisichetti, took office on January 24, 2019. If his name sounds familiar, it's because his father, Etienne Chisichetti, had been prime minister under Mobutu for a short period of time. Things are improving to some degree, but it still takes considerable effort to change the course of thinking, culture, skepticism, and politics that have been in place for 60 years. The average person still struggles to get medical treatment, send their kids to school, and put food on the table. The eastern border region is still in disarray and controlled by warlords and subject to Rwanda and Uganda rebels crossing into Congo and causing problems. The UN still has a presence in eastern Congo to this day, as that area still can't find peace due to the wealth under its feet. But there is hope that this last election gave more confidence to the people that their president was indeed elected democratically. Furthermore, there is hope that the younger generation will push to keep the government to follow its constitution and not allow the country to fall into authoritarianism, as has been the norm since the birth of the country. Wow, what a journey this country's been on. These five episodes covered a lot of ground indeed. And looking around the globe at other countries in the last 140 years or so, I don't think any country has endured what Congo has in terms of death, abuse, destruction, war, poverty, political unrest, and lack of hope for a future. My heart cries for the people. My heart cries for the country. For 56 years of my life, I've been part of this country and part of the people. For nearly 20 years, I was part of the country and its people directly living there. Some of my best friends are Congolese, and to see the pain, the suffering, the physical and emotional and social abuse they've endured is indeed heart-wrenching. Trying to raise families while dealing with an inept and unaccountable government for 60 years just doesn't seem fair. Why do I get to live in the USA and my friends are stuck in Congo? How have they endured? My guest in a previous episode on one of my podcasts, Karen Carlson, said that the Congolese are tough, resilient people that have been subject to war their entire lives. Indeed, it's been virtually nonstop war and unrest since 1960. Nothing has really moved forward for the people, yet they have learned contentment. They have learned acceptance of their fate. I saw this in 2013 when I visited my hometown for several weeks and spent time with many of my friends. They've accepted their lot in life and the constant state of their country. While we in the U.S. are divided politically, Democrat versus Republican, COVID-19 vaccine versus no vaccine, mask mandates versus no mask mandate, the average Congolese I know just wants one thing. He just wants peace. He wants to be able to live and plant his garden or work his job and give his children a better chance to succeed. He wants his kids to be able to go to a good school and maybe, just maybe, go to a university. Could it be we Americans are so ambivalent to how good we have it that our squabbles are over issues that really aren't that important? We take for granted that our last civil war was about 150 years ago. We haven't had rebels attack us ever. We have peaceful transitions of power every four to eight years. 
We can all send our kids to school and attend a university and pursue virtually any opportunity we want. This series on the history of Congo has been a great journey for me as well. The research, preparation, talking to numerous folks, and hearing Congo's history from all of them has been extremely fulfilling. I'm so happy to be able to share it with you, the listener. A big thank you goes out to David Van Rebroek for researching and writing the book titled Congo, The Epic History of a People. Considerable historical information was gleaned from his amazing and comprehensive book and bibliography. And thanks to my various guests that shared their real-life stories that are part of this country's story. Pete Ekstrand, my Congolese friends Talabisa Dawena, Nyenemo Sanguma, and Paul Nord all shared a different dimension for this episode. I will conclude this series on the history of Congo with one more episode. It will be an epilogue of sorts. I will be delving into the spirit of the Congolese people to try to understand their resiliency, acceptance, contentment, and persistence in life in spite of all the difficulties they and their ancestors have endured for over a hundred years. They are indeed an amazing and tough people that I have come to admire and appreciate. I hope you join me for what I feel is the most important episode of this series, a salute and tribute to the people themselves, how they've endured, adapted, and thrived in spite of all the hardship over multiple generations. Please join me for a tribute to the Congolese people and an epilogue in Episode 6 on The History of Congo. So that concludes this episode. I hope you enjoyed it and will join me again. Other episodes and blog articles on a variety of topics can be found at congokid.net. In addition, Life Stories by Congo Kid Podcasts can be found on Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. I'm Jeff Eels, a.k.a. Congo Kid, your humble host. Until next time, I send you off with a farewell in Lingala. Paninganangai, tikalamalamu. My friends, stay well. <laughs>